Lord, we ask, ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we consider what you have to say for us. And thank you for all that your loving care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John chapter 4. Uh, we just had the statement of John's disciples coming to him and you know, complaining to him that Jesus is getting more popular than he was. And we ended the chapter uh, with that many people were believing on, on Jesus at that point. So chapter 4, verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than, Jesus, uh, than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. So I want to stop there for just a moment. So Jesus and his disciples were out baptizing. We talked about that last week. And Jesus himself was not baptizing. And I think this is an important key that they're going in. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were baptized by Jesus? How proud and arrogant you know you would be? Because people were already I'm baptized by Paul and Peter and all these things. If Jesus had baptized anybody... It had been, I was baptized by Jesus himself. So I think it was very important that Jesus did not baptize. The same thing, he never wrote a book that we know of. Why? Because if he wrote a book, it would be, you know, this is the book that Jesus wrote. You know, we, you know, we, we are going to get rid of all the other books of the Bible because this is his, his book. You know, like the whole, the whole Bible is his anyway, but... Um, you know, and it's one of my problems with the red letter editions of the Bible because people are going, and I've heard it more than once, it's written in red, so it's important. Why are the things that Jesus said any more important than anything else that he said in the rest of the book? Uh, you know, so we want to be careful about that. Just because Jesus said it does not make it more important than what he said through somebody else because it's all written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is what it tells us. All scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. All, not just the red words. <laughs> so uh, I really, if people can't get hold of that, I would, I would wish people not to buy a red letter version of the Bible if they can't get past the idea that Jesus' words are more important than any other, any other words in the Bible. Uh, I read it and I'm going, okay, Jesus said it, great, big deal. <laughs> Because he wrote, you know, he is the one that inspired the whole scripture. And we need to make sure we keep that in mind when we're looking at the scripture. But he says here, they were baptizing more people than, than John the Baptist was baptizing. Now remember, in John 1.25, the Pharisees were upset at John the Baptist baptizing people. And they asked him, on whose authority are you baptizing? Who, who gave you permission to do this? And his answer was simply God. But the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they, they really tried to control. If you weren't approved by them to preach and teach and baptize, then you were illegitimate. And so Jesus now is getting more disciples than John, and they hated John, and now they're looking at this new guy replacing John, getting lots of disciples. And so they're going to get very set about this whole process and we're going to see it all through the scripture all through the the uh, gospels that they got very upset they attacked they tried to find trip him up and then it says in verse 3 he left judea and departed again to galilee so remember when he met nicodemus he had been in jerusalem then he went into judea which is the 
county, basically at the county where, where Jerusalem sits. Now he's leaving Judea to go back to Galilee, which is in the northern part of the country. And it says here in verse 4, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now for us Gentiles, that doesn't mean a whole lot. All right. But the Jews did not like to have anything to do with the Samaritans. So when they would go north, they would usually go around Samaria unless they were in a hurry because it would be the nice straight line was to go through Samaria. But if they weren't in a great big hurry, they would go all the way out to the Jordan, follow the Jordan up, and then come back, back to the west, where they'd go all the way around uh, Samaria to or the Mediterranean Sea and, and take the road, the Mediterranean road, highway up and come back over to the east. And they would try to avoid Samaria. Why did they hate the Samaritans? Because the Samaritans were considered by them to be half-breeds. The handful of Jews that were left behind by Nebuchadnezzar had intermarried with the people that Nebuchadnezzar had put in there, and they were half Jew or less, and they did not follow Moses and the Ten Commandments. You know, they kind of had made up their own religion, as we're going to see here when the woman of the well starts talking to him. And so there was all these different problems, and the Jews looked at them, you're... You're not pure. You're not pre, uh, pure Abraham seed. You're not pure in your worship, and therefore you are dogs that aren't worth worth us paying attention to. And so they had a very strong animosity against the the Samaritan people. And you know this is the problem in, that we still have today is this racism that is rampant. In our day, it's more color related. Uh, it used to be nationality related. You know, you, you, you hated different nationalities for whatever reason. And it's funny, in Europe, there still there aren't as much color racist as they are nationality racist. Uh, you, if you're a certain you know, country, you don't like people from another, another country. And it's kind of funny because every, every country has some other country that they think are, are the people that are really stupid. For us in America, you know, you've heard of Polish jokes, you know, the, the Polacks are supposed to be really stupid people and make things done. Uh, when I was going to Bible college, we had a person from Finland and a bunch of people were t telling Polak jokes and he didn't laugh at a single Polak joke. So he started telling Italian jokes. Now, they were exactly the same jokes, <laughs> except instead of Polak, it was an Italian because for the... For the Finnish people, the Poland is right next to them. They're not stupid people, and and you know, and the Irish are far enough down that they go, they're the stupid people. And it was just funny in one sense. I thought it was funny because you know all they did was switch nationalities, but his jokes were exactly the same joke, except using Italians rather than <laughs> Polacks. Is it a good thing to be doing something like that? I don't think so because I don't want to be grouping anybody into that kind of a mentality. We are all of one blood. We are all of one race. We all come from Adam and Eve. We all have Noah and, and Mrs. Noah as relatives. We're all one race. And to have this whole problem of racism is a big deal. And this is what Jesus is going to tell the, the woman at the well as he gets toward the end of it, that you know, that's a problem. And so we're going to continue here. And it says he must needs go through Samaria. I think what was happening here is he was getting so popular that the, 
Sanhedrin was going to probably look to arrest him at that point, and it was way too early in his ministry, so he decided to basically for, you know, get out of Dodge. <laughs> I'm going to get out of here, and the fastest way is to go straight north. And so he left so that they would not be able to arrest him at that point. Now, it's speculation, but it says he must needs. There's this urgency being indicated there that he had to get out of where he was at. It's quite possible that they wouldn't follow him in there. You know, I'm going to go through some place that nobody wants to go through. And that's a possibility. Uh, but again, I think he was being kind of chased out at that point. All right, verse 5. Then come, came he to a city in Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being weary with his journey, sat thus on, on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the, into the city to buy meat. And the woman of Samaria said unto him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. We're going to stop there for just a moment because here's playing again on, on what we don't know fully about. So they w went into Samaria and they came to the city of Sychar. Now Sychar is approximately 30 miles north of Jerusalem. So Jesus has gone basically one day's journey from Jerusalem. Uh, hard day, hard day walk. You know, they, in their day they would easily walk 20 miles and they could push for 30 or 35 miles on a, on a, they were kind of pushing it. Uh, we kind of look at it like, you do what? <laughs> when I was young, I remember walking a 20 mile marathon and it took me about six hours to walk the 20 miles. Uh, but, you know, and most people in today can't really do that kind of stuff, you know, and it's, but Jesus had walked this and he was tired. And he'd got to Sychar about 30 miles from where he started. And it might have been two days, but because he's so tired, I think it was one day, one day that he's pushing to, to get up there. And he comes to Sychar, and it says that it's near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, most people think that this, that this place would have been in Genesis 28, 19, or Genesis 33, 18, and 20, where Jacob buys a plot of ground mostly because he's having trouble with the people who keep, he digs wells and they keep chasing him away and saying, yep, this is our well, you can't have it. So he finally buys a piece of property and puts a well in and says, no, now this is my property. You can't change it. And this is an indication that it's an indication of, of what is still going on in our world today when, when water needs become a big deal, water becomes a great problem. And we've read about it in the old, in the old west, the range wars, and mostly the, most of those range wars involved lakes and streams and stuff that gave them, or, or rivers or whatever, that gave water. Because water was so precious, especially out here in the west where it's so much dry area, you needed water. Well, the Middle East was no, no worse off. If you had a well or a, an oasis, you had the right property. So Jesus is here, and we don't know exactly which well this is talking about. We know that we know if you've read Genesis, Jacob dug many wells. 
All right, many of them he got chased off, but then he had this one that he bought, and most people believe that he was given, that he gave it to Joseph. And there's not, that's not recorded in the scriptures except this one place that he gave Joseph a piece of a, a well. All right, Joseph was his favorite son. Remember that Joseph out of the 12 brothers was his favorite until Benjamin came along uh, because he was born of Rachel, his favorite wife. So he's given this, this land here, and Jesus got there, and Jesus was weary. And this is very kind of interesting is that he was exhausted is literally what this, what this was. So he traveled a long time, and he was physically exhausted. And he sat down on the well, at the well, during the sixth hour, which is noon. All right, so it's noon. It's the hottest part of the day. He's sitting at the well. He's tired. The disciples and he have been walking, walking all morning to get there. And so he sits down at the well, and it, it says, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now, we read this, and we don't necessarily think too much of this, but you did not draw water in the middle of the day. You drew water at the morning hours, or you drew water at the late evening hours when it was cooler. You did not go out and draw water in the middle of the day. So what does this tell us about this woman? We're going to find out more about her, but she was not a respectable woman. She was not allowed to show up when all the other women came to, to draw their water. Now, if she had, she would have been ostracized and put aside because she was not respected. And that would be what happened. If you weren't respected, you ended up drawing, drawing water in the middle of the day because that is what you did, you know, because you were not respected. And we have a hard time un understanding this because it's not as big a deal to, to have a child out of wetlock or, or you know, have fo commit fornication or anything. We, we kind of think it's okay. It wasn't so long ago, even in our country, that it wasn't okay, and it's definitely not okay there. And this is one of the problems that Mary would have had with, with, uh, when she was raising Jesus. You know, you had a child out of wedlock, something's wrong with you. So she was most likely ostracized for her entire time, which is why when we read about the wedding in Canaan, where it seems that she has some very important parts in, it was a big deal. She had finally had a chance to <laughs> do something that brought her out of the reputation that she had. So this woman has a reputation, and we read this because it's noon, and she's out in get drawing water. And so Jesus says, give me to drink. So here we have a couple of problems with this. Um, and then verse 8 just says, for his disciples have gone in this city to buy bread. So Jesus is sitting at the well alone. A woman comes up into the well, up to the well, and he starts speaking to her. So we're going to set the stage on what this means back in those days. Number one, she's a woman, and he's a man, and they're alone. She is a woman with a reputation to, uh, to add to it. So by all factors, Jesus should not have talked to her, probably should have gone away from the well so that there's no accusations being made to him for being there talking to this woman alone, uh, the woman with a reputation to begin with. And he would have known that she had a reputation because otherwise, why would she be there at noon? All right. Then she's a Samaritan. 
Jews don't talk to Samaritans. <laughs> they have nothing to do with Samaritans. They, they're half-breeds. They don't, they don't, they're not important. And so she's kind of amazed on many accounts. You know, first, on, she just mentions, you know, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you even talking to me? Jews don't talk to us. And probably not even thinking about the whole idea of we're here at the well alone, and that's a problem. You know, that's not so much of a problem to her because she's kind of, that's her reputation in, in, in the town. And Jesus talks to her and doesn't seem to be phased by violating all of the norms of his, of his day. And it wasn't so long ago, even in our country, that you did not, you know, men and women did not hang out together alone. If you were courting somebody, you had a chaperone. You know, and that's just the way it was until you, until you finally got married, you had a chaperone. And it wasn't so long ago, and those same rules basically go there. A woman and a man could not be together because who knows what they might be doing when they're alone. And so Jesus is violating all kinds of societal norms by talking to her. And he says, you know, give me some water. And so her answer is very interesting. She goes, you know, she just says, how is it that you being a Jew ask me, which am a woman of Samaria, you know, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans or no associations with the Samaritans. So they would not normally talk to them. This is a big deal as far as she's concerned. She doesn't understand why Jesus would be talking to her. And this is, when we read about Jesus, it's very amazing. How many times did Jesus violate societal norms? How many times did he violate the Jews' extra rules? You know, he almost went out of his way to violate all of the rules that they had. He would hang out with sinners. He would, he would go to dinner with them. He would, he would heal people. He would touch people that were unclean. He would you know, talk to the women. He would, he would do all these things that people did not understand. And I think he did it on purpose to show them that, you know, you guys don't know what you're, what you're doing. And it's very important for us as Christians because how many times do we look down on somebody because they're not acting the way we think they should act? Maybe even fellow Christians. And we need to be careful about that. Number one, we cannot apply Christian standards to the lost world. Yeah. I don't want the lost world to act like a Christian. Because number one, they can't. But number two, that just makes them a good person going to hell. Because they don't know Jesus. And they're doing all the good things. You know, they're being nice. They're, they're giving, giving to the poor. They're reaching out. And I've known many people that don't know Jesus that would, are very generous. They give people everything, you know, food and clothes and, and whatever but they don't know Jesus. And they're going to end up in hell, you know, as one of the good people in hell, quote-unquote good people that go to hell. And this is one of the things, and I've said this many times, and it's been said for a long time, when we get to heaven, two things are going to surprise us, the people that are in heaven and the people who aren't in heaven. Because we're going to look around and say, that person, that wicked, terrible person is in heaven, you know, where's so-and-so? They were really nice. And they go, well, they're in hell. But, but, because everybody wants to key in on the idea that good works get you into heaven. And Jesus would, would violate these frequently. And so she's going, I don't understand why you're even talking to me. You know, and remember, this note there, he says, you know, 
uh, you ask me a drink which am a woman of Samaria. So she's going through both sides of this. I'm a woman, so I'm kind of amazed that you're talking to me because there's no chaperone anywhere nearby. So that doesn't, you know, that surprises me. And I'm from Samaria and you're a Jew. Now, how she knew he was a Jew, I don't know. His accent, how he dressed, I have no idea. Um, and it's kind of an amazing thing when people do have these prejudices, they know what the other ones look like and how to identify them. All right. Uh, many Europeans, they know that, you know, certain type of nose belongs to this, this nationality and, you know, certain kind of jawline or ears or, you know, they know what the other one's characteristics are and they can spot them from, from a long distance. You know, you're, you're an Italian, you're a, you're a German, you're a French, you know, and they all know, know these things. And I would look at them and go, oh, you're just European. And it's no big deal to me. You're all European. Uh, and so she goes, you being a Jew are talking to me, a woman of Samaria. And she's astonished for multiple reasons that we've just covered. You know, I'm a woman, I'm from Samaria, and now you as a Jew are talking to me. And she is amazed. This does not make sense to her that a Jewish man is talking to her. She would be amazed if a Jewish woman talked to her, for, you know, that it wouldn't be, as, wouldn't be quite as bad because there would only be one being violated, not the fact that a woman, a woman could talk to a woman that would not be the problem, but being a Samaritan, she'd be surprised that a Jewish woman would talk to her. But here's a Jewish man talking to her, asking for help. All right, so here we got this problem going on, and Jesus answered and said unto her, if you knew the gift of God, who and who it is that says to you, give me to drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. Then the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. From where then have you this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? So Jesus gives her the question and goes, she goes, you know, why are you asking me? And he says, if you knew, and look at this, if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God who sits before you. you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus was the gift from God sitting in front of her and saying if you only knew who it was talking to you, you would be reacting totally different. And this is kind of an interesting thought process. He goes, this is the gift of God and who said to you, give me to drink? Then you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the word for living here that we've talked about in the past is zoe, which is when the Greek uses zoe life, it's usually referring to the spiritual, uh, spiritual life, as opposed to bios life, which is just regular physical, physical life. When he says, and I would give you this spiritual water that really brings true life. And so Jesus is making a point here to them. Woman, you don't even know what's going on here. You're, you're blinded to what's going on. And she had no reason to know. She had not been taught or anything else. But Jesus said, if you just knew what was going on, if you just knew who was sitting in front of you and kind of an interesting statement because the disciples aren't here. He's talking to her and saying, 
there's a real life that will bring spiritual work with you. And he goes, you just need to know who it is that is sitting in front of you. And she didn't. And I wonder sometimes how many people do not realize the gifts that are sitting in front of them in the spiritual world. Now they look at a Christian and the, and the joy and the peace and we offer them a gift that is so valuable and they reject it because they don't recognize that gift. All right, verse 11. The woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. From whence have you this living water? And so they're going, how are you going to get this water? This well is deep. I did some looking up to find out how deep the, the well of Jacob was and they said it's 75 feet deep. Wow. That's a long way to draw water. That would be quite, you know, you're throwing your bucket down 75 feet and drawing it back up. Yeah, you didn't need a long, long rope. And how long would it take you to pull 75 feet of rope back up when the bucket is full? Well, it took him a while to dig it, obviously. Um, but, you know, you think about this, and she's saying, this, this is very, very deep. How are you going to get this water? You're sitting here on the well, you're asking me for water, and you're going to give me water, and this is a deep, deep well to draw water from. And they did not have electric motors and all of that stuff. Uh, you know, they could have had some pump system, but I don't think, by the way she responds, I don't think there was a pump system there because they could have used bellows and whatever to, to pump it. But it sounds like it was one where you dropped the bucket in and you drew the bucket back up. That's a deep well. 75 feet is a long, long, long fall. And then she asks a very inter interesting question, which the answer is yes. Are you greater than our father Jacob, which dug this well? All right. In her mind, the answer would have been no. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the patriarchs for both groups, they still recognized the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the ones that are important. And she goes, Jacob dug this, dug this and go, are you greater than Jacob? Now the answer, of course, is yes, because he's the son of God. He's the one that wrestled with Jacob when he was uh, seeking after God. He's the one that met with Moses. He's the one, you know, he is all through the Old Testament. So the answer is yes, he's greater than in her mind, no, he's not, or at least at this point. So her question is, are you greater than Jacob who dug this well and who drank of this water himself and his children and his cattle? Or, you know, who are you that you think you're so special to give me living water when our great, great ancestor is the one that dug this well and this well keeps us here in Sidecar alive and, and we have plenty of water because of this deep well and who are you to be talking about living water? So this is her question. And, you know, again, bringing this up because her question is kind of legitimate. And from her point of view, there's nobody greater than Jacob. You know, it may be Abraham and Isaac, but Jacob is the one that they're looking at. It's his well. And here you are out here saying, basically saying you're greater than Jacob. And that's her, that's her attack. You know, who do you think you are? All right. Are you greater than Jacob? You know, who do you think you are? You think you're better than Jacob who dug this well? You know, we would not have this well. We would not have our city here if it wasn't for Jacob. And now you're telling me that you can give me water better than the water that he dug up. 
So it's kind of an interesting statement when, you were, when we put it in there. You know, she's kind of challenging him, which is pretty bold. I mean, first off, she's a woman, and now she's you know, a Samaritan woman. She's talking to a Jewish man, and now she's not even being nice to him. She is challenging him on, on her words. And when we read this from our day and age, it doesn't sound all that, all that crazy. But in that day and age, I mean, she could have been in great trouble, number one, just talking to a man, number two, challenging him. Because he could have gotten all upset and saying, who are you to challenge? You know, you're nothing but a woman. Why are you challenging what I'm saying? Because you've got to remember, back in these days, women had no rights. And that's one of the things that's so funny. When we read the New Testament, how many times did God use women to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim the gospel message? When Jesus rose from the dead, who was the first one to see him? The women. All right, and a lot of people go, well, this is crazy. But yes, if the Jew, if the disciples had been trying to lie, they would never have used women to be the ones that discovered Jesus being raised from the dead, because in that day a woman could not even give testimony in court. That's how low they were. They were not even allowed to go to court and give testimony. So if you were going, if they were the eyewitness, they could not testify against you. And God used them, and he's going to use this woman to go into the town and bring everybody out to him. Again, using a woman to bring the gospel message. And this is how much God has raised the position of women. And it's very true that everywhere that Christianity has held sway, the rights of women have been lifted up. Everywhere that Christianity has not held sway, Women are still struggling for any kind of rights. In most of the Middle East, much of Africa and, the, and Asia, women have very few rights. And they're only getting rights because people are saying, well, you know, you must, you must give them rights. And even then, they're not getting the rights that, that they would have. Now, are they fully where they need to be yet? No, but they are a long ways from where they used to be and where they are in other places. Because the gospel brought women's rights up. Jesus always was talking to the women and encourage the women. And so he comes in here and she's going, you know, who are you? <laughs> Basically, who do you think you are? You think you're better than, than Jacob? And you know, the answer, of course, is yes, but she does not know that yet. And so in verse 13, And Jesus answered and said, Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give them shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be to him a well of living water springing up unto everlasting life. And the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. All right, so Jesus says, you know, we're talking about two different kinds of water. She doesn't catch that. She's going to think physical. Have you ever talked to somebody who's not a Christian and had them totally missed the point of what you're talking about spiritual. You talk spiritual, and they're th- hearing, hearing physical, and there's a total disconnect in what they're, what they're understanding. And this happens all the time. Why? Because the spirit is not in them to understand what is being said. And we know the same thing. How many times have I heard somebody say, well, I tried to read the Bible, and it doesn't make sense. Then they get saved, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit lives in them, and they start understanding what they're reading. Maybe not fully, maybe not completely, but all of a sudden, it starts to make sense. 
And it's not just a bunch of words on paper. It is, some, it is living water that Jesus said it would be. And so we have this process going on. And Jesus is saying, you know, whoso drinks this water shall be thirsty again. Now she's thinking how wonderful it would be to not be thirsty. But, you know, if I drank water and not be thirsty anymore, it'd be wonderful. I wouldn't have to come to this well every noon, noonday when the heat is, heat is high. I won't have to come here anymore. So she's thinking physical. Jesus is speaking spiritual. And because he says, And whosoever drinks of this water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give to him shall be a well of water springing unto everlasting life. So he says, I'm giving you a different type of water. You, you and I are talking apples and oranges at this point, or pomegranates and and grapes, whatever, you know, for their, for their area. You know, we're not even talking about the same thing. You're thinking physical water. I'm talking about spiritual fulfillment. And this is where it's wonderful. I love being a Christian because the Spirit lives in me, which gives me the opportunity to be content with what I have and to know that God's in charge and all the different things that come with getting to know His Word and knowing that we have life. And the more we understand the word of God, the greater our understanding of eternal life and more trust we have in. The disciples Many times they did not. They were doing the same thing she's doing most of the time. He would speak in the spiritual realm. They did not hear, they, and they heard in the flesh. But how many times do we do the same thing? We read, we read the word of God, and we're thinking in the fleshly terms instead of the spiritual terms. God promises to bless us. And what do we think about blessing? Lots of food, houses, cars, money, uh, new, all kinds of new toys. And God's saying, no, I have so much deeper blessing for you if you would just understand. And this is why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We increase our faith by getting to know God's word and really getting to know it. And then all of a sudden we start thinking spiritually rather than thinking in the flesh. Now we'll never perfectly do it because we are fleshly beings but if you've, if you've noticed over the years when you're walking with God the longer you walk with God the more you start understanding spiritual things and the more you start thinking in spiritual ways and we'll never do it perfectly but we can get better and better and better at it and all because we get to know his word which is why I encourage everybody read the Bible every day go through the Bible uh, each year. Uh, spend time being in Bible studies and learning God's Word and, and really being able to understand His Word and change the way you think. And I watch people whose lives are being changed greatly and watch how their thinking changes. And this is what's going on here. He's speaking spiritually, she's hearing physically. And so she's got some problems. <laughs> All right? And she's going, hey, I, I want this water. I want this water so I don't have to come to the well anymore. I don't want to have to come up here anymore and draw this water, especially in the middle of the day when it's hot. All right? So he is speaking spiritually. She's hearing physical. Wouldn't it be nice that I don't have to come here and draw water? Now, if she'd really been thinking about it, he just asked her for water, physical water, and he's talking about spiritual water that brings everlasting life and saying... I would give you spiritual water, you know, all I'm asking for is some, some physical water. And she never catches on. She never draws 
the point across that he just asked for water. Now he's talking about eternal water that is not going to bring, bring thirst. And think about this. Before you're saved, you know, how did you feel toward things? You were thirsty. You were hungry. You were out of, out of uh, sorts. You know, you wanted more. Then we get saved. And we get fulfilled because God lives in us. Maybe, maybe we struggle with how well we feel for fulfilled and how well we don't have thirst if we're not following him closely. But here Jesus is saying there's a living water that brings life because the spirit comes in and fills us and teaches us to be content, teaches us to trust God. And so here's, here's the statement that he gives. And she says, sir, give me this water. Give me this water. In verse 16, Jesus said unto her, Go, call your husband, and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, you have, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. In, in that you say truly. And the woman said unto her, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain and say that in, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where man ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what, and we worship what we, what we worship, for salvation is for the Jews. But the hour comes and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus gives her a challenge, and this is where she's going to start fully understanding who he is. And he says, go get your husband. All right? All um, right. Now, he got to know that she's a, a woman of low reputation, so otherwise she wouldn't be there. But he says, go get your, go get your husband. And, and she says, I don't have one. Now, Jesus amazes her because he says, all right, you spoke the truth. You don't have a husband. But you've had five husbands, and the one that you're now living with, you're living in fornication because there's not even your husband. All right, reading in, behind, in, between the, in between here. And the one you're living with isn't your husband. So you're living in fornication. Now this has got to amaze her. She doesn't know this man from, from anybody, you know, from Adam. So it's just a man that she's met. And he tells her that she's been married five times and living in adultery. And apparently it was true. Because she didn't argue with him. <laughs> She didn't argue with him, but she's got to be amazed that this is happening. That this man knows her uh, living situation. And, you know, this is, you know, so her answer is, you know, I perceive you're a prophet. Because only a prophet, somebody who knows God, could be able to tell me the things that you don't, that you didn't know and have spoken on this. And her statement then is, our fathers worship in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So what is this? This gets into her religious problems. All right? We're, we in Samaria, we've done our own thing. We, did, we couldn't get to Jerusalem because there was no temple, nothing out there. So we have been worshiping on this mountain since we were placed here. This is our place of worship. 
But you Jews insist that everybody has to go to Jerusalem to worship. And we've talked about this in, t- in various times. For the Jewish people, their whole worship of God centered around Jerusalem and the temple. They really did not have this sense that they could worship God wherever. When they would go to a synagogue, it wasn't necessarily to worship, it was to be taught. To hear the, hear the uh, Pentateuch being read and have somebody do some teaching. But they really didn't think about worship and prayer. When it was time to pray, they had a prayer book and they would pray their prayers that came from the book and they would very rarely ever say a personal prayer. When the disciples watched Jesus pray, they're going, he's not praying a prayer book. He's not praying out of the book. He is having a relationship with the Father, and that's why they asked him, teach us to pray. Because they're going, you're, you're very different. You're not, you're not doing these prayers out of the book. You're not, you, have, you and the Father have some kind of relationship that we don't have. And so here we're seeing the same thing. He, she's going, you Jews, you think Jerusalem is all important. We think this mountain's important. And so we have this thing going in. She, this is her religious arguments now. Her first argument was, you know, basically, you know, who do you think you are? The second argument is, you know, now we're going to go into our worship, you know, our religion. And this is a problem we have today in our world. You start talking to somebody about Christianity and Jesus and a relationship on Jesus, and they might throw, who are you to judge me and, and say your way is the way, your way, the way to go? Because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And we have to understand that. But people today don't really want to take that hard stand. Why? Because it's politically incorrect to tell somebody that they're going to go to hell because they're not following Jesus. But you know what? I'm going to be politically incorrect and stand with Jesus rather than be politically correct and be judged by Jesus. I want to be able to say, God says this, though I'm going to believe it. And I'm going to work forward with it. And we need to get to that place where we say, God said it, that settles it. I don't care if it's politically correct. I don't care if it's you know, good or bad or indifferent. You know, I'm going to stand with God. Now, that doesn't mean we get rude and, blunt, you know, and attacking people, but we speak the truth in love. You know, and this is basically, God says this, so if you don't follow him, then your destination is hell. You know, and we don't go, <laughs> you're, you're, you're heading right to hell and I can't wait to see you there. No, that's not what we want to do. Uh, and Jesus was very soft with her. You know, he's been very soft with her as he goes through all of this. And so now she starts throwing up religious opposition. And Jesus answered her and he says, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the Father. Now this is not what she expected to hear. This is a Jew speaking, as far as she's concerned. And he's saying, there's going to come an hour when we're not going to worship God here or in the mountain of Jerusalem. And that's got a shocker. And Jesus was really good at these little statements that shocked people because he said so many times things that made no sense because they didn't match what everybody else said. And the Jews for 100 years, millennia and a half, Jerusalem has been where they go. Jerusalem is, is everything. The temple is in Jerusalem. This is where you worship God. Three times a year, everybody goes to worship God and offer sacrifices. 
can't offer sacrifices anywhere else but Jerusalem. So that was where they worshiped God when they offered their sacrifices. And so Jesus is saying, oh, woman, there's coming a time when neither here where we're standing nor Jerusalem is the place to worship God. And we understand that in our day and age, but they did not understand it then. He says, you worship, you know not what. All right, so where, where did you get your information? Because they're not following the Pentateuch. They're not following the laws of God. They have made up their own religion. All right, and in our day and age, how many places that name the name of Christ are worshiping something that is not Christianity? There's a lot of it. There's a lot of people that don't worship Christ, and they use the name Christian, but they're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And this is what Jesus is saying. You, you don't even know what you're worshiping. You have made up your religion. And this is what's happening in our world today. There is so much designer religion. And I've talked to a lot of people that go, well, you know what? I don't really know about this Christianity, but I like this piece of, uh, you know, this truth in, in Mohammedism is really good. And some of what Jesus said is pretty good. And some of what Krishna said is pretty good. And they mix them all together and make up their own religion. So what are they doing? They're making themselves God. I know what truth is, and I'm going to pick what I like to be true. I am God. I pick what I want. Now, while I know that, that they're not going to go to heaven because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, I really respect people who pick a religion and try to follow that religion as much as possible. They're headed toward hell, but I can at least respect them. All right, They're giving their full heart and attention to trying to work their way to heaven by, by their deity. But I have no respect for these people who mash all the religions together and say, I'm just going to pick what I like. Because, you know, they're, they're not acknowledging God at all. At least the other ones, they're acknowledging a false God, but they're at least acknowledging a God and saying, I'm pinning my hopes on this, just as we as Christians are. And when I talk to people and go, you know, and they'll say, well, what if you're wrong? And I'm going, well, you know what? I have not, I have not lost anything if I'm wrong. God has made me content. I am very blessed. And the worst that can happen to me is, from what you say, is that at the end of this world, I'm dead and nothing else happens. I'm not, not, a, not a problem because I've lived a very good life and I've been very happy. And if I'm right, I get to go to heaven. If you're, if you're right, you've been miserable trying to keep, the, keep all these rules. And when, and, when you go to, and when you die, you get to go to hell. You, know, you, you are miserable all the way around. You know, if, if we're wrong as Christians, I've lived a great life as a Christian, a blessed life. So if I die and this is all there is to it, then I still lived a good life. And God has blessed me. But because of the blessing, tells me that he's going to keep and give me everything he told me he's going to give me for eternity. And it's because of his blessing that I can say, and the joy and the love and the fruit of the Spirit, that I'm going, all the stuff he's given me in this life, just as he said he would, I can trust him to take me into eternity for the rest of, rest of what he's promised. And it's always amazed me when people will not trust God in this life, and yet they're going to tell me that they're going to trust God for eternity. And it's like, that does not compute. You cannot trust God to keep you in this world that you see, but you're going to trust him for eternity. And I look at that and it just, none of it computes. Uh, if you cannot trust him here, how can you tell me that you're trusting him for eternity? 
And this is where, because we need to practice our faith here so that when faith is not faith and we see it, we will know that, know that we're covered. And so this is very important. And Jesus is saying, you know, it's not going to matter. He goes, you worship what you don't know. We worship. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement that he's making. And it's one that's not going to be really popular with her. Because he's saying it's going to come from the Jews. Why? Messiah has to be of the seed of David and born a Jew. So he has to be born from the Jewish line. And this is very important as we look at God's promises. You know, the very first promise of a Messiah was in Genesis 3.15 where he says, your seed, the woman's seed, which is very interesting because women don't have seed, they have eggs, the men have the seed. But he says, your seed woman will be the one that crushes the head of the serpent. Virgin birth was, produ- was predicted right from the very beginning. Then Abraham was selected out of all the various people of the world to be the one that will bless all nations. That was the Abrahamic covenant. Your seed will, will bless all the nations. Those that bless you that will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And that you're, you will bless all nations. Then we had Isaac and Jacob. Later on, we get David. Out of all the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah is, is, is taken. And then out of all the families in, in Judah, David is taken. And then we come to Jesus at the, when the time comes, born of a virgin, of the line of David, from Judah, from Abraham, from Eve, to be the Messiah. And an amazing thing when we think about this, and born in Bethlehem. And you know, we think of it as a big deal because everybody knows where Bethlehem is in this day and age, but in their day, Bethlehem was not that big a city. It was a terrible little, little suburb outside of, you know, 20, 30 miles outside of Jerusalem. The only great thing, uh, claim to fame it had was that King David was born there. Other than that, nobody really cared about Bethlehem. Little tiny town out in the middle of nowhere, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Yep. But that's what it said. That's what the prophecy said, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. And so a little tiny town that nobody really cares about was picked to be the, 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 the birthplace of the Messiah, and that's what happened. And so he's saying there's going to come a time that, first off, salvation comes from the Jews, but the hour comes and now is. All right? So... Jesus is now saying things are changing. This time is coming when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. In other words, he's saying you won't have to go to Jerusalem. You're not going to go here on this mountain. You're not going to have to go someplace to worship God. And again, we don't understand that in our day and age because we are so used to being able to worship God anywhere. Now, some Christians get a little crazy and think you have to go to the church to worship. But we can worship God. We pray. We study his word. We can sing. We can, we can be ministered to from, by God anywhere. And this is what Jesus is saying. In their day and age, if you, know, if you did not go to, for the Jew, go to Jerusalem, you did not worship. 
you took your lamb or your goat or whatever you were going to offer and you went to Jerusalem to offer your sacrifice and you would drop your offer, your tithe in the, in the, in the uh, offering uh, boxes that they had when you went to worship. You would have your songs being played by the, by the priests that were singing all the time and, and that was your worship. Three times a year you would worship. And other than that, you kind of just lived your life. If you, if you were really righteous, you went to a synagogue, you listened to some rabbi teach you a little bit from the, from the Bible, and he was basically reading from the Tanakh or the writings of the other rabbis, which is what another thing that amazed people when Jesus spoke, because he did not speak of the other rabbis. Because they, even to this day, the rabbis speak of the other rabbis that have their, their sayings in this book. And they will not take authority and say, this is what God says. They go, this is what rabbi so-and-so says about this, this, and this other rabbi said this, and this other rabbi said this, and they don't really ever take a stand on it, even to this day. If you talk to a rabbi, it's a, it's a roundabout uh, discussion. And it's been said that if you talk to a, a rabbi, you'll have seven opinions. Because they'll give you an opinion from every other rabbi, and some of those opinions are contradictory. And basically they're saying, you pick what you want, it's okay. All right? Uh, because they don't take a stand on much of anything. Jesus was not like that. He said, thus saith the Lord, and this is what it says. And, and he took very strong statements about things and worked them, worked them on. And this is what he's going through here. And he says... Uh, that the true worshiper of the Father worships in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. Why? Because he is a spirit, Jesus said. He is a spirit, and he expects worship to be done in spiritual. Now, what, is, what was her opinion and the Jewish opinion? You follow these traditions, and you do things this way, and, you do, and that's how you worship God. Again, we go back to that. Three times a year, the Jews, uh, every Jewish male was to go to the, uh, Jerusalem, to the temple, and offer a sacrifice. Three times a year, however far. Now, it wasn't too bad if you lived in Ju Judea because Jerusalem wasn't that far away. If you lived up in Galilee where Jesus was from, it was a good week to get to Jerusalem. So to worship three times a year, you were gone for a minimum of two weeks. One week to get to Jerusalem, one week to get back to Jerusalem. So for two weeks out of, you know, at a time, and you did it three times, so six weeks out of the year, you did not get to run your business, you did not get to run your farm, because you were going to Jerusalem to worship. And that's where you had to worship. So you would go to, go to worship, and when you went there, you had to have your lamb with you, you had to go through all the routines, and everything was scripted. You knew exactly what was going to happen. You were going to go see the, the priest. The priest was going to look your animal over, make sure that it was pure. They were going to skin it. They were going to do, you know, get it cut up for the offering. They were going to pray over you and whatever else they were going to do. And then, there, and then you were going to have your forgiveness announced because you had gone to the temple for your worship. And if you did not go there, then you were in disobedience and you would not be blessed for the rest of the rest of the year because you didn't obey God and go to the temple. And this is sad because there's so many Christians that have the same mentality. All right, got to go to church so I can give my 
one hour of time to God and God will be happy with me because I went to church and endured crazy singing for, for 15, 20 minutes and then that, that long-winded pastor got up and spoke for another 20 or 30 minutes and then we, and then we got to leave. And we got to go, I, I endured my service for God. What the Jews were doing all the time. I endured my time with God. You know, in their case, it was you know, time away from work and then worshiping through tradition. And we end up doing the same thing a lot of times. You know, God, I'm just, I put my time in. I put my time in. Now, I have never felt that way. I love going to church. I love being taught. I love singing, singing the songs. But I know there's lots of people that it is just their duty. Got to put in my time because that's what God wants. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves and so much more as you see the day approaching. So I'm going to go to church and get my brownie points with God. And God's going to be happy with me because I sacrificed one hour a week for him. Or if I'm really spiritual, I sacrificed two hours a week because I went to Sunday school as well. And we want to be careful that we never get into this traditionalism. And this idea that everything is just habit. And even though I push for reading through the Bible every, every year, I don't want people doing it just because they think they're getting brownie points with God because they read their Bible. For me, reading my Bible is for me. It's not for me getting points with God because God teaches me and feeds me and gives me the living water when I read his word. And I look forward to getting into his word. And so this is what's important. We don't do things for the traditional, this is what we have to do. I'm not winning points with God by being obedient. Matter of fact, that would be works, and God doesn't recognize works. For by grace are we saved by faith, not of works of righteousness. You know, so we need to be able to understand that it's very important that our works don't mean anything. Now, our works have value. Don't get me wrong, we've said this many times. When I'm obedient to God, it, and my obedience is not to get me brownie points with God and to make him think good, but there are blessings for being obedient to God. And the greatest blessing is that we don't suffer the consequences of being disobedient to God. You know, those consequences can be pretty bad sometimes. So it, just from a practical point of view, I want to serve God and, and be able to walk with him in the spiritual realm to not have all the problems that come by being disobedient and reaping what we, what we sow. And so he says to her, God is to be worshipped in the spirit. And in verse 25, the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. And when he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto you am he. All right. So her statement is, we know a Messiah is coming, the anointed one, the Christ. We know there's one coming, and when he comes, he will know all things. Now he has already told her that she has five husbands, and the one she's living with is not hers, and who knows what else he's told her, because it seems like when she gets to the next, next week when we go into this, she, he must have told her more, because she's going to tell the people in the village, come meet the man who has told me all that I have done. So what else has he told her? We don't know, but the, the key word is, you know, you have five husbands, you know, you had five husbands, and now you've got a man who's not yours. And she takes it that he knows me. He knows me. And Jesus said to her, I that speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. 
This seems to be the first time he has come out and really clearly said, I am, I am the one. And it's very interesting in who he says it to. A Samaritan woman is the first one he announces that he's Messiah, that we get, that we get the evidence of. Quite interesting you know, that he would say it to a woman and to a Samaritan, I'm the Messiah. And it's kind of, I always find it interesting when Jesus does these things. Because he always ends up, you know, you would think he would tell the Pharisees or the scribes or Jewish leaders or Jewish priests or somebody in, in, in Jerusalem, I'm the Messiah. But his first time that he tells somebody that is recorded in the book of John is to the Samaritan woman, this adulteress, this fornicator that, that is a half-breed. <laughs> and he says, I am the Messiah. And this is going to be something, because the, apparently the Samaritans were looking for the Messiah almost as much as the, the Jewish people were looking for the Messiah. Uh, you know, they were waiting for the Messiah. And for the Jewish women, every time that they would have a child, the greatest thing that they could think of is one day, maybe my child is, is the Messiah. Especially if you're of the, city, of the tribe of Judah, of the, of, the, of the family of David, every one of them would have been, did I give birth to the Messiah? Did I give birth to the Messiah? And now, the problem was none of them were virgins as well, but... <laughs> But, uh, but even for each one of them, is this the one? What did Eve say right after, after uh, Abel, uh, Abel was killed by Cain and Seth came along? I have a new man-child. She thought that Seth was going to be the one that would crush the serpent's head. So she had thought that she had given birth to the Messiah. <laughs> All right. Uh, and obviously he wasn't, but that's another story. But even for Eve, she was, you know, I, I gave birth to the... I gave birth to the Messiah. And this is one of the things that the Jewish women, even to this day, maybe, maybe I'm the one that's giving birth to the Messiah. And so she's saying this whole thing that they are looking for the Messiah. And Jesus says, the one standing you in front of you is the Messiah. And she ties it with, the, the Messiah is going to tell me all things, and can tell us all things, and he just told me, what I've done, you know, where I've been, how I've, how I've lived. Maybe, you know, and, and her conclusion is, he said he was. He proved it even before this. He's a man that has told me all things. He's the Messiah. And we're going to look at how she evangelizes next week. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. We ask you to help us to see who you are and to get excited about you enough to tell people about you and to, to seek after you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you, and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life.
after you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.